Uh, with that being said, how many of you are fans of Paul Harvey or even know who he is? Okay, good. I was afraid I was going to mention that name, and they're like, Paul? Paul who? For those of you who don't know, he's a radio personality uh, who gave us the rest of the story, right? And he was an amazing storyteller and personally one of my favorites. I remember when he talked about the movie It's a Wonderful Life, a classic Christmas movie. How many of y'all have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, probably most of you have. Um, It's become a tradition for a lot of families. Critics say it's one of the 10 greatest films ever made. But what's interesting is that it almost never happened. The movie was written, or the story of the movie was written in 1938, but it wasn't sold to a movie studio until about six years later. And even then, that movie studio never did anything with it, and they ended up selling it to to someone else, and no one ever really produced a movie until 1946, almost a decade later. And even then, it was a disappointment Despite starring who was then the the classic actor Jimmy Stewart, it got no awards. There was really hardly any interest. It just kind of fell off the radar until 1974. So a lot of years, 1974. The reason that year is important is because that's the year that the copyright came up for that movie. But because there was really no interest in it at the time, that day came and went. Nobody paid any attention and now that the copyright was not removed or renewed, it entered into what's known as the public domain, which means that now it can be played for free in anybody's home or on anybody's TV, really across the world. And as a result, it became wildly popular to the point that conservative estimates suggest if they would have kept that copyright renewed, they would be making to this day upwards of $26 million a year. But here's what's amazing. The copyright renewal fee for that movie was $4. And now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) That's a fun story, but there's actually a connection to our, our passage this morning because, as you know, we're in the book of Daniel. And Daniel has discovered the scroll of Jeremiah where it talks about God's plan for his people, and he, he's trying to understand that plan. And I think he has an idea of what might happen. But God sends the angel Gabriel in our passage this morning to give him the rest of the story. It's an Old Testament story that speaks about a New Testament Messiah, a promise that was given some 500 years before Jesus was ever born. And and as we read that story, not only are we going to see the evidence of of a prophecy that points to the first coming of Jesus, we will see the prophecy that points to the second coming of Jesus as well. But here's the question for you and I. We live in this present age between those two. So how should we live in the light of Christ's return? That's what we want to look at this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to do so with humble hearts. We know that when you speak through your word, you speak truths that are really important for us to hear. And so I just ask, on behalf of myself and everyone in this room and everyone listening this morning, that you would clear our hearts and minds of any distractions, of any preconceived ideas, and that you, we would allow you to speak unhindered 
and to our hearts and minds. And I would ask, Lord, specifically that you give us some clarity and some, some motivation of what it's like to live, what we should be about in this present age. As we look back at your first coming and what you accomplished on the cross and we look forward to your promised return and the hope of eternal life. So Lord, give us a sense of what that means for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to Daniel chapter 9 and let's uh, pick up where we comfort it is for me to, to appreciate the great job that Jeff did last week and what a comfort it is for me to, to step away and know that whoever steps in here is going to handle God's word and speak to people that they love and care about deeply. And that was certainly true for Jeff. So thank you for doing that, my friend. Okay, so Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel who I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now we learned last week that Daniel has discovered the scroll of Jeremiah. And, and after reading the scroll, he recognized the prophecy of the 70 years, the prophecy that he then recognized was being fulfilled. Their captivity was a result of their rebellion. It was a judgment of God against the sin of the people, and not just individual people as in personal sin, but the sin of a nation who corporately and collectively had rejected God's movement among them. God sent prophets, and those prophets spoke God's word, and yet God's people did not accept God's word. Instead of being set apart as a holy people, Israel became a nation that looked like everyone else around them. They incorporated many of the, the pagan beliefs and practices of the, of the people around them. Instead of being a light to the world, they found themselves in a very dark place of sin. And so God used Babylon to, to bring judgment towards his people. But as we see all throughout Scripture, God always leaves room for redemption. And so he promised that after 70 years of captivity, that his people would be released and able to return back to the holy city of Jerusalem. And Daniel understands that that redemption that God promises is always connected to man's repentance. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm sure one of the passages that Daniel read in verse 10, it says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's exactly what Daniel's doing in this deep, agonizing prayer before the Lord. He is pouring out his heart. 
He's praying for himself. He's praying for his people, for the restoration of the holy city, the restoration of the holy place, that temple where God's presence was found, and the restoration of God's holy people, the Jews. See, because after the the failure of all the sinful kings of Israel, Daniel is relying on God's promise, a promise to bring an everlasting kingdom, to be ruled by a holy and righteous king. And in my mind, Daniel has to be thinking of David's, or the covenant promise to David, an everlasting king in in an everlasting kingdom. Why wouldn't this be that time? In the middle of his prayer, he's interrupted by the angel Gabriel, that same angel who met him and and interpreted that vision back in chapter 8. He explains that God sent him to give insight and understanding to Daniel. And then at the end of verse 23, he says, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, I read that and I thought, what vision? Daniel has been reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He's been praying before the Lord as he understands the promise of being released after 70 years of captivity. So so what vision? The, The only vision that could be in mind here is the one that he just had back in chapter 8 where God promises to that there will be destruction so here's Daniel's confusion he's reading Jeremiah and it's the promise of restoring and rebuilding the holy city of Jerusalem but back in chapter 8 he had a vision of one who would come and bring great damage and destruction one is rebuilding one is destruction how do these both happen do you see where the confusion might be So the angel Gabriel is sent to bring clarity to his confusion. Look at verse 24. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So Gabriel sent by God to bring clarity within the confusion of Daniel as he's trying to understand the rebuilding and the destruction and and how all these things fit together. And it all began, let's keep in mind, when Daniel discovered the promise of a literal seven years of captivity. A literal seven years, that's important. And Gabriel goes on to describe another period of time also beginning beginning with the number 70, which I think is also important. Now, in your Bible, it probably says 70 weeks. Some of them may say 70 years, depending on your translation, uh, or 77s. That's actually the more literal translation, 77s. But the question is, 77s of of what? I, I see it much like our word dozen, right? When we hear dozen, we know that it means 12 of something, right? But it could be 12 of anything. It could be a dozen eggs, it could be a dozen donuts, it could be a dozen people. It it all depends on the context. The the meaning is derived from the context. And in the context of our passage, Daniel is focused on the prophecy of a literal 770 years. And and this is more than, hey, yay, we get to go back home, woohoo! Okay, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the anticipation of the restoration 
of the holy city of God, the holy place of God, the, the holy people of God. Again, I believe that he has in mind that promise to David to establish an eternal kingdom with a holy and righteous king. So Gabriel explains that the complete fulfillment of that promise is not what takes place after 70 years. Instead, it happens after 77s of years. Or to be more specific, 70 times 7 is 490 years. Okay, Remember that. You get the same result when you look at 70 weeks of years because each week is a period of, of 7 years. Gabriel says that God has de decreed this time for specifically your people and your holy city. Okay, so what we need to understand here is this is a promise specifically made to the Jewish people and the holy city of Jerusalem. And, and there are some very specific things that he promises are going to happen within this 490-year time frame, six to be exact. If we look at them again, the first one is to finish the transgression. The second one, make an end of sin. The third one, make an atonement for iniquity. And then number four, bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, seal up vision and prophecy. And number six, anoint the most holy place. Now, you can look at these as six individual things, and that would be fine, but I think it's also helpful to see them grouped into two sets of three. Because if you look closely, the first three all involve the issue of sin, don't they? Finishing the transgression, making an end of sin, making an atonement for iniquity. It's all revolving around the issue of sin. And I think the second three, the, the next a set of three, is the outcome of the first three being accomplished. Some have even tied them together so that the finishing of the transgression is what brings in everlasting righteousness. That making an end of sin is what seals up the vision and prophecy. And making an atonement for iniquity is what anoints the most holy place. Now, again, you can look at them individually in either way. That would be fine. But I think it's helpful to group them into two Sets of three. But remember, this is a promise to the Jewish people in the Jewish city of Jerusalem. Even though that you and I hear those things and we think to ourselves, well, that's what happened at the cross, right? That's when Jesus put an end to sin. That, that's when he made an atonement for iniquity. And that's true. But Israel, as a nation, rejected their Messiah. To this day, they do not look at Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I believe that's the transgression to which they are ultimately guilty of. That's number one on the list. The transgression is the rejection of the promised Messiah. And the atonement Jesus made for sin cannot be applied outside of the presence of faith but we know that one day Israel will believe and the reason we know that is because of what we walked through in Romans not too long ago if you want to you can turn to Romans chapter 11 and we'll look at that again Romans chapter 11 beginning in verse 25 it says this 
For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Some translations say the fullness of the times of the Gentiles. Remember, we've been talking about that in the book of of Daniel, the, the times of the Gentiles, until that's completed. And it goes on and says, And so Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, there will be a national repentance of the Jewish people at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Israel will accept the Messiah that they have long rejected. And this is what ushers in the everlasting righteousness. This is what fulfills that vision and prophecy, that that covenant promise made from God to his people Israel. Jesus himself will anoint the most holy place with his presence. These six things in verse 24 represent the completion of the covenant promise to the Jewish people, a literal promise to a literal people that will literally be fulfilled. All this coming to completion at the return of Jesus Christ. We see more details of that as it unfolds. Look again with me in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In an effort to simplify these verses, because it can get confusing in a hurry, I want us to divide it up into three segments of time that we see being outlined in what we just read. In verse 25, it says it begins with the issuing of a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And that time will take seven weeks. Seven times seven is 49, so 49 years to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The second segment of time begins at the end of that building project up until the coming of Messiah the Prince. That will occur in 62 weeks or 434 years. And then there's a final week, this period of seven years. We see in our passage that this is when a different prince Different from Messiah the Prince when he arrives and he makes a covenant with Israel and then he breaks it halfway through. He will bring great desolation that God will ultimately bring to an end when he says it's time after the seven-year period. So 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem, 434 years until the coming of the Messiah, 
Seven years of tribulation for a total of 490 years. Okay, let's not lose sight of the fact that all of these things are being communicated some 500 years before Jesus ever arrives. And here we see a passage in the Old Testament that points specifically to the promise of the Messiah. This is a big deal. The key to all of this is understanding when this begins, right? we got to know where to start if everything else is going to be correct following it, right? And verse 25 says it begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But historically, we know there were at least four decrees that took place that allowed people who were in captivity in Babylon to return to their city of Jerusalem. So the question is, which one was it? Well, there's actually only one decree where there was full restoration and rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, and that's what's recorded in the book of Nehemiah. We get lots of details about what took place there. And we know that that decree was made in 445 B.C. We know that historically. So that's our starting point. Everything cascades from there. We know from Nehemiah's account, if you go and look at it, that they faced fierce opposition, didn't they, from all the people around them who did not want them rebuilding that city. Well, in our passage, verse 25 says that it will incur during times of distress, which was true. But eventually, we know that the temple, the walls, the houses, the, the plaza, or more literally the streets of the city, the moat, or more, more literally the, the ditch, that's next to the city of Jerusalem, all of that would be fully restored. It's defenses, it's worship, it's leadership. All of Jerusalem was back to what they had known it to be before the captivity took place. And once that's done, we start the countdown to the Messiah, which will occur in 62 weeks or 434 years. Now, if you do the math, that puts us at 38 A.D., which is a problem. Because that's after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. We only come to that number, that date, when we use our modern calendar. When it comes to biblical prophecy, there is a biblical year of 360 days. Let me show you how that's true. Turn to Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. Pay attention to the numbers as we go through this together. It says in verse 2, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot under the, for the, uh, underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Okay, let's just be clear. 42 months is what? Three and a half years. Okay? goes on in verse 3 and says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So 42 months is three and a half years. The next verse says that there's 1,260 days. If you divide that by 360, the number of days in a prophetic year, you get exactly three and a half years. 
That's how we know that in biblical prophecy, a year is 360 days. Now, if we apply that calculation to the 62 weeks or the 434 prophetic years, it takes us to 32 AD. Just before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some have gone so far as to nail it down to the day of the triumphal entry. <laughs> now, that may be true, but I'm not near smart enough to know if that for sure, so we'll just have to see. But what we do know here, and don't lose sight of this, is that Gabriel is accurately predicting the arrival of the promised Messiah, Jesus, some 500 years before it ever took place. But look at verse 26. Verse 26, it says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. But notice, this happens after. Do you see that? After, not during the 62 weeks. When it talks about the Messiah being cut off, what do you think that's referring to? When was the Messiah cut off? The crucifixion, right? So it's talking about the crucifixion, the the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that happens after the 62 weeks, and yet before the final week, because that's describing something totally different. So hang with me here. This event that takes place, the cutting off of the Messiah, occurs after the 62 weeks, but before the final week or the last seven years. So what this is telling us is that there must be a gap of time between the end of the 62 weeks and the beginning of the last week. And this verse actually describes other things that are going to take place within that gap of time as well. It says that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. When you understand, this is another prince, okay? It's different from the Messiah, the prince. By using that same description, what Gabriel is telling us is that one is true, one is a true prince, one is false, one is the false prince. So what we have here is the true prince is Jesus Christ. The false prince is the Antichrist. That's what's being described here. It says that they will destroy the city and the sanctuary, the people of the prince who is to come, not the prince himself. So what this means is that these are early generations of those who will eventually lead to the one from whom that antichrist will come forth from. And like the cross, it occurs in that gap of time before the antichrist actually appears. And we know historically That in 70 AD, the Romans do exactly what's being described in this verse. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They do not leave one stone stacked upon another. And that's exactly what Jesus was weeping over in anticipation when he walked into Jerusalem just before his death. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I want you to read with me beginning in verse 41. This is Jesus entering the holy city of Jerusalem. 
And it says in verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade around you, a siege, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So in this gap of time, we see the crucifixion of Jesus. We see the destruction of Jerusalem. The passage goes on and says there will be ongoing war and desolations. Nations will rise against nations. Political powers will come and go. There will be pandemics, failing economies, moral decay. And at the same time, there will be prosperity, wealth, and innovation. All of this leading up to verse 27, where we learn about the final week, the final seven years before the return of Jesus Christ, also known in the Bible as the Great Tribulation. It says, he will make a covenant for one week, and the he is referring back to the prince who is to come. This is the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with Israel. We need to understand that this is, this is a real person, okay, that came up through the generations and would become someone powerful, politically powerful in the world during that time. And he would be empowered by Satan. We know that from Scripture. If we go back to chapter 7, this is the little horn, remember? The little horn who rises up out of the ten and destroys three, ruling over the remaining seven. That's who this is talking about. This is the Antichrist. He will make a covenant, or today's terms might be easier to understand it as a treaty. He makes a treaty with the nation of Israel. It will be an historical event because this treaty is going to promise to give protection and peace in Israel. But after three and a half years, he will break his promise. And instead of being an ally to Israel, he will become their enemy. And during this final three and a half years, quite literally, all hell breaks loose. Listen to how Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. It says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, that's what we're reading, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. ever on the housetop must not go down to get things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Let's skip down to verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man. That's Jesus coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, 
from one end of the sky to the other. At the end of the great tribulation, Jesus returns. And he will carry out God's judgment and put an end to the one who brings desolation to a complete destruction of that man. It says, complete destruction will be poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, I know that I just dumped a truckload of information in you, right? Let me try to simplify it. This is a real simple timeline. And let's just review what we just walked through and see if it can become clear for you. So it all begins in 445 B.C. That's the decree from Artaxerxes that allowed Nehemiah to go back and under his leadership restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And we know that that takes place over a 49-year period of time, at which point we start the clock for the coming of the Messiah, another 434 years. After the 62 weeks, so after that time, we see that the Messiah is cut off. Also during that gap of time, 70 A.D. to be specific, we know that there is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. There will be wars and desolations until the Antichrist comes for the last seven years. When he does, he becomes the most powerful man in the world. And he himself causes a, creates a treaty with the nation of Israel, to promise, promising to bring them peace and prosperity of which he then breaks halfway through. And that's when everything goes crazy. Not to mention the fact that it was pretty crazy the last three and a half years before that too. That seven years of tribulation is not a happy time, but at the end of it, it becomes incredibly joyous because our Savior returns. And that's when Jesus, in his second coming, begins to set things right. Now, when it comes to end times, you need to understand that there is a wide variety of opinions. And there's no way that I could cover the landscape of those ideas in a single sermon, probably not in a single year for that matter. But what I've given you is my understanding based on a literal interpretation of the Bible. Those who see these numbers figuratively, so they're not a literal 490 years, but they represent instead kind of a, a longer period of time, will come up with some very different solutions. But here's something you need to understand. No matter what opinion you have at the end, about, about the end times, every single true believer in Jesus Christ believes the same thing, and it is this. Jesus is coming back. Every one of them believes that Jesus is coming back. And that sin will be judged by a righteous and holy judge. And only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. And that's what Peter tells us in Acts chapter 4. He says, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given unto man by which we can be saved. See, the goal is not to argue over every prophetic detail of which nobody with absolute certainty can be dogmatic. The goal is to understand what it means to live in this present age. This time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ because he is coming back. So what does that need to look like for you and I? Because that's us. 
I want to close with a passage that I think is helpful. So if you would, turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I think Paul quite explicitly answers that question, and this is one of many places you can turn, but I think this is helpful. So I want you to read with me, beginning in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It's for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and that's what happened through the first coming of Jesus Christ. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly Here we are in this present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I want us to understand here that we are in a privileged place in history. We can look back and we can see the finished work of the cross and know that how that dramatically impacts and transforms our daily lives. Amen? And we can look forward to the promise of Christ's return knowing that that's our hope of eternal life and that day is coming. We are in a privileged place of history where we can look back and look forward and see the work of Christ. The question is, how do we live in the in-between? This verse tells us to not be distracted by worldly desires, to to not get caught up in worldly affairs, to not get so enamored with money or success or or what's happening in our families or, or all the things that so easily consume us. Desiring instead to be conformed into the image of Christ. Knowing that he sacrificed our life for him, for us, so our lives in return should be a daily living sacrifice for him. Not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our goal should not be just to figure out how to get through the day. Let me just confess to you, there's plenty of days in my life where that's what I'm trying to do, just get through the day. But when I find myself in that mindset, I've lost sight of a greater purpose. I've lost sight of the privileged position that I have in this world in this present time. I've lost sight of the promise of the Lord's coming because it really doesn't matter if, if, if I don't have enough to get the clothes that I want today. Because when Christ returns, that's not going to be important, is it? And so I just need to be careful. We are living within the light of the imminent return of Christ. We always need to keep our eyes on that hope and expectation. May we look, as Paul says, for the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I read passages like this, and I think (laughs) you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to speak with such incredible clarity. I I hope people walk out of this place floored by the amazing detail of what you said was going to occur. And most specifically, the promise of a Messiah that came just as you said he would. And this is only one place 
where we can look to see that being fulfilled out of many in the Old Testament. Lord, may we just be so humbled by the fact that you made it known and you carried out your promise. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, that it would penetrate deeply in our hearts in such a way that it impacts how we live our daily lives and that we wouldn't get lost in those daily lives and lose sight of the promise of your return. But instead, may we live in light of your imminent return and reflect lives that live with hope of the promise of eternal life when you come to set things right. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. First of all, thank you for hanging with me through that hard passage. But man, isn't it great news? So let me encourage you to do something this week. I, I'd really urge you to sit down with family and friends and have a conversation about what it means to live in light of Christ's return. What does that look like specifically in your life? Are there things that you're not doing that you need to start doing? Or maybe there's things that you are doing that you need to stop doing. But how can you live, as the Bible tells us, so that when he does return, we don't shrink away, but we embrace him because we've been longing for the day. What does that look like? But with that in mind, I also know that there are some in this room this morning who have not placed their faith in Christ. And I would encourage you to not look forward to what is to come, but instead look back to what has been done. Because he came for you. He came for you so that you could have salvation and forgiveness of sin so that when he comes his second time, it is the embrace of eternal life and not the judgment of sin because he took care of that on the cross. So would you consider this morning looking back to his first coming and bowing before that great sacrifice that he made for you and allow him to restore the relationship that you were ultimately created for and may you live eternally in that gift of life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the blessing of this morning. Love these people. We are so grateful for your love for us, your kindness and compassion. And I see it in passages like this, where you give us a picture of the promises yet to come, and you fulfilled some of them and we can rejoice in that and we can look forward to the ones that remain and know that you'll be just as faithful to fulfill those and so Lord help us as we have conversations this week to understand what it means to live in the light of your imminent return it's in the name of our soon and coming Savior Jesus Christ that we pray amen have a great day